everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, for the purposes of this podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. And I highly recommend you take advantage of it. This is your only chance. <laughs> this is the, the podcast. This is the podcast. Nobody calls me Rockmeister McCool on any other if podcast. You, if you see him in a crowd and you yell out Rockmeister McCool, he will not answer to it. Well, Unless maybe you would, preface actually. it with Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, thank you for mm-hmm. answering my letter. And everyone's looking around you real weird. Because you just started yelling that in the crowd. Also, why are you in a crowd? It's a pandemic. <laughs> well, this is, yeah, projecting forward when crowds can gather once again. Anyway, I'm feeling weird tonight. Uh, this is our letters show. You write into us. The email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And we answer your questions. We respond to your criticisms. Mm-hmm. We take your requests. We'll basically talk about just about anything you want. Uh, this time is yours. You listen to us talk a lot. And so we want to give everyone else an opportunity to... Um, take this platform mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, we don't like to dilly dally. Whitney, why don't we just okay. jump right in? Uh, this is a letter from Mrs. B. Hi. Hello, Mrs. B. Uh, dear Messrs. Bibiani and McCool. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year now after getting to know you from your appearances on the Schmodown. Uh, while I haven't seen many of the movies you discuss, I'm enjoying listening to a couple of good friends sitting around and talking about their shared interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I am not as I am not too too much older than Whitney, sometimes our nostalgic interests overlap a bit as well. That's that's always magical, isn't it? When yeah. somebody mentions something and you get it, like the nostalgia actually. It can be hits really right. It can be a really narrow window right now. Like you have to yeah. be born like within like a year of someone now. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I just. Didn't see Don Coyote when it was a cartoon on TV. <laughs> it was only on this one like, narrow window. And, and as we've said before, you and I are, are four years apart in age. Yeah. But which is technically we're like different generations. So mm-hmm. we do come at things pretty differently. Uh, anyway, uh, this is t- taking us to task for something. So no. let me continue. Um, as I was listening one day, I noticed that you suggested a movie. I can't remember which one was okay and a good movie to watch with grandma, implying that grandma would prefer a gentler, simpler movie. Uh, that was the movie The Dig I was talking about. Oh, okay. So, so this is all on you. Great. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so much better. I'm not going to lie. Uh huh. <laughs> we'll, discuss, we'll discuss your mistakes soon enough. No. Um, you have done this more than once, but you are not alone. I've noticed that uh, music is handled in the same way, as in don't listen to this with grandma in the room. Uh, we are also shocked when we hear on the news that a woman was arrested and that she was a grandmother. I'm not saying that, quote, grandma was young once too. Rather, do we really think that a drastic personality shift happens upon becoming a grandparent? Yeah. Or that we are so very different in our personalities than those who came before? Or that we are more savvy or erudite or jaded or whatever? My parents, uh, these days known as Granny and Papa, introduced me to Twin Peaks. Mom and I saw Firewalk with me together. The original Little Shop of Horrors, Alice Cooper, and Catcher in the Rye. They still like those types of things. Their preferences haven't changed. They didn't suddenly become Celine Dion fans. <laughs> and they still like movies with a Lynchian vibe. Anyway, this is starting to turn into a rant instead of a question, so let me think of a question. Have you noticed this habit as well? Do you recognize when... Uh, when you do it to yourself. Why do you think we categorize older generations this way? Okay, glad I got that off my chest. Hope that all made sense. My best wishes to you and yours, Mrs. B. Um, you know, this this actually is a really good point, and it's something that I think... I think there are certain conversational rhythms that we fall into very, very easily because mm. they they were, and there's no pun intended here, uh, grandfathered or grandmothered in. Mm. Um, this is how our parents referred to their grandparents, this is how we thought of 
our grandparents, mm-hmm. and for many years it was considered that, oh, they were from a more conservative time. Yeah. And they didn't like things like the Beatles. My grandparents hated the Beatles. They didn't mm. understand what the premise of, of the Beatles was. They threw out my mom's Beatles lunchbox. Could have put me through college. Mm. So there's definitely <laughs> that vibe. There's definitely that vibe. Yeah. However, that's our grandparents, or at very least mine. Yeah. And that's not necessarily anyone else's. There's a comedian who's been in a lot of bad movies, but I've enjoyed some of his stand-up, Nick mm. Swartzen. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know he, Nick Swartzen. He had a bit. I don't like all of his stand-up. But he had one good bit where he was talking about this exact phenomenon. Where we're so used to thinking of our grandparents as listening to like old timey music from the 1930s, but everyone gets old and there's soon enough there will be grandparents who grew up listening to NWA and they're going to have a totally different vibe as grandparents. So Mike, Mm. you're right. It's probably time to retire this. Uh, Well, will it? Because as new generations come up and their interests start to take the place of uh, the grandparents' interest. Mm -hmm. So the way you, you just approach that is as somebody who is clinging on to their dominance in the show business marketplace. People are still catering to people your age, William, but you're going to age out. Well, exactly. And your interests won't be mainstream. And so no matter but how that doesn't hardcore, mean they're going to be milder milk toast is my point, but they will be. Here's my point. You'll be listening to NWA and that is going to seem quaint compared to the new stuff that will come up. I see your point. Listen to, uh, you know, listen to the way your parents or your grandparents talk about Elvis Presley and how revolutionary it was. You listen to it today and you might have a question mark. What? This was well, the thing that was shaking everybody up. That's why it's important to contextualize. Exactly. That's but, what do. But, you know, you, you listen to a lot of, uh, you know, rock and roll from the 1950s, and it seems so serene and kind of peaceful now. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, a article after article have been written about the fact uh, of, about classic rock stations, about how uh, all of the stuff that you play on classic, you hear on classic rock stations is typically uh, like, 1970s rock like 1970s rock and roll for the, for the I, I, most part 80s has been creeping in there well exactly it's, it's, yeah. it's been creeping in but yeah. uh, you know when i was growing up it was all classic rock and you listen to all of that stuff and that used to be sort of the rebellious voice the voice of a new generation it's really uh trying to put down the generation that came before it mm-hmm. and as people try to put me down and talking as, you know, about my talking about day. my generation yeah. you know i can't get no i dare you not to bang on the side of your car well no 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 um, <laughs> you grow into your 50s, you're still listening to that music because it gives you that same good feeling, gives you that nostalgic feeling. Right. And now it has the opposite effect, right? Now no. it's comfort food. It's not about being rebellious and destructive and tearing down the old structures. It's about feeling safe again. Well, what we've got here is an example of hmm. um, just it's, it's all relative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the stuff that grandparents will be like in our generation when you and or I are grandparents mm-hmm. will seem pretty daring compared to the stuff our grandparents were into. And I'm not entirely sure that's always going to be the case because I feel like tastes change and sometimes tastes get a little bit more sensitive. I've noticed this generation is a little bit less uh, uh, eager to just be in your face for the mm. sake of entertainment and uh, uh, making a statement. Yeah, I know it's a lot more sensitivity overall in the way the, that we make uh, our art. The, the entertainment for the early 2000s kind of went a little overboard. So now we're yeah. so withdrawing it's from a cycle. that a bit. Yeah. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. Right? Well, and and we'll, push, we'll push again yeah. and then we'll pull back look, again. Look, and, yeah. Clothing styles get mm. more... Uh, uh, they're you know, they're more garish and then they're conservative. Gar- and, garish uh, is a good way to put it. Yeah, exactly. Look, look, um, yeah, look, uh, midriffs besides, were everywhere 20 years ago. Oh my God, the low-slung pants. Yeah. Um, 
like I, I love looking at science fiction films that were made in the eighties because they looked forward to the nineties and thought it was just going to be eighties or yeah, it's going to be like more bigger, frog rock. Bi- bigger yeah. shoulder pads, higher yeah. mohawks, and the newest they could, of waves. They could never have predicted flannel. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're right. And sometimes I I will say this. I will say this. I think you're right in that uh, when we discuss things like something your grandparents can enjoy, what we're basically trying to say is it's something that's relatively inoffensive. However, Mm -hmm. grandparents might always be interested in things from previous generations and that might always be relatively Mm -hmm. more more uh, accessible or 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 less Mm -hmm. edgy. Than the new generations, but I don't think that's always going to be the case. It, yeah. And I do think, of course, every grandparent is different. Indeed, you know, my dad but was the, a biker, and he yeah. was a granddad. You know, so my uh, my my mother, who is also a grandmother, um, I've noticed her taste changing. Though when mm-hmm. I was younger, she would point me towards stuff like uh, Ingmar Bergman's Scum and Shame, which is an incredibly harrowing movie, and she you know knew about David Lynch, and she you know had listened to Rough Entertainments. But as she got older. Mm-hmm. And this is going to happen to all of us. And as you experience more of life, using death and edge and misery as a form of entertainment isn't as fun anymore because you've experienced a lot of that in real life. Yeah, it starts to become not so much fodder for entertainment as something that's genuinely kind of depressing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or so, really something to take really seriously. So my, my own mother, who used to like, used to go to art houses all the time and see, you know, edgy fare from Ingmar Bergman and Antonioni. It now is perfectly happy to watch like detective shows on BritBox. She yeah. likes a lot gentler entertainments now. Yeah. I expect the same is going to happen with me. Yeah, my parents were weird because my dad was very much of the ah, I can't understand what everyone in Metallica is even <laughs> saying. What is this music? Ah. And then my mom was like, she had the biggest crush on Kurt Cobain. Like when Kurt Cobain <laughs> died, it was it's cute. It was a tragedy for everyone, mm-hmm. but it was, it hit her like even harder than it oh. did me. She was a bigger fan than I was, <laughs> so she was always kind of like, kind of more cool when in music than most people I I knew from her age group. Mm. You know, but granted, I didn't talk to everyone's parents about music, but you know, um. So, but in any case, the generality is something that is mm-hmm. not going to hit everybody. And maybe we need to be more specific with our language. Anyway, but thank you so much. That's a really good observation. And we need to be cognizant of these things because it, if we, it, don't, it if is, we, don't, if we yeah. don't reconsider the, the words that we use every once in a while, we might lose yeah. sight of what they really mean. Yeah. And so when, and we don't want to seem ageist. That's for sure. That, yeah, that, I'm, that I'm, I, I wasn't, wasn't trying to imply any kind of ageism that, yeah. that anybody who is a grandparent has changed tastes. When, when I refer to a grandma film or uh, more frequently, I refer to dad films. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm trying, I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying to, to evoke yeah. a certain kind of film. And I think that's meant to be descriptive, but you know, I'm not trying to disparage a group. Yeah, uh, I, I so, can say something that I definitely observed with my own eyes between my dad and other people around him. Maybe less so my dad because he was always into it. But Pat mm-hmm. Oswald had a joke about how you know when like you hit fifty, you develop a sudden, unexplained interest in World War Two. Yeah, Greg Proops has a bit about that too. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just a thing. Like every dad I knew, once they hit their forties, just got more interested in yeah. World War Two and started watching the History Channel more. They weren't even of that generation. They didn't go to World War Two. <laughs> their dads just the, might have the, this but weird, like, fascinating bit of of history. Now they yeah. become these history buffs about war. Yeah, it's either that or the Civil War. That that happens. My dad was never into the Civil War. Okay. He was never he was never fascinated with it on like a tech level. My dad okay. was like a rivet counter, and he knew all about mm. tanks and formations and all yeah. these sort of strategic things and so yeah mm. 
Uh, anyway, uh, that was a really yeah. great letter, though. Thank you so much for hmm. that. And let's move on. All right, here's a letter from Kaylin. Hello, Kaylin. Um, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, thank you for your Hitchcock recommendations. I'm excited to have some ge- suggestions as to where to start. I have two questions today. Okay. What is Sight and Sound? <laughs> And why is their best films list y'all the one y'all reference? Uh, beyond your podcast, I have not heard of it, so I always fall back on the okay. AFI list, which seems to differ slightly. Who comprises the voting body of each list? Okay. That's a great question. There's a second one here. I have lots of memories of eating Blue Bell Mint Chocolate Chip Ice Cream. <laughs> With my parents as a child. (laughs) Because of this, I still occasionally buy it and call it my favorite ice cream, even though I prefer others now. I also fell in love and uh, became fascinated with films from watching Titanic on opening uh, at way too young an age. Uh, Because of this, it'll forever be my question. The answer to my question, what is your favorite movie? Uh, Even though I revisit it far less uh, than dozens of other films. So my question, what are some things that are your favorite because of nostalgia rather than because of your current taste? Uh, Caitlin. Sign Caitlin. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer the second part first because it's a bit more direct and it's just a matter of mm. uh, I like these things. It they're not good, mm. but they're they're comfort. And uh, my number one answer for this will always be Spaghettios. Spaghettios are awful. <laughs> they're, they're awful they're, food. They're they're supposed to taste like cheese, but it, it's been a long time since that was cheese. They just taste like Spaghettios. You know how like purple candy no longer tastes like grapes. It just tastes mm. like purple. Yeah. That's how I am with SpaghettiOs. SpaghettiOs <laughs> tastes like SpaghettiOs. You can only use the word to define itself. It can, it's only divisible by itself in it's, one. It's, it's like a, yeah. it's like chemical flavoring and a lot of sodium. Yeah. It's, that's but it. it was something that, you know, after a hard day, my parents were both educators. They're mm. exhausted. They're as exhausted as I was at the end of the school day, if not more so. Mm. That was the thing they would give me like right away. And then we'd usually have dinner really late. So that was like mm. our late afternoon snack was like a can of SpaghettiOs. So like that's not that I have it every day, but it was common. Yeah. So for me, that is comfort food. That is, uh, I don't have any energy to do anything else. Thunk. Shunka, shunka, shunka. Ah, uh, there's always a few left in the can. Get a spoon. Clinkity, 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 clinkity. <laughs> Thunk. Put it in the microwave. Microwave. 80 seconds. Oh, 80 okay. seconds. All right. Never, don't overdo it because you want to eat them right away. What am I? What am I? A masochist? <laughs> And then you take him out, give him a little stir, and you go, hmm, that's average. And then you go eat, uh, go watch Pirates of Dark Water. Like, that's <laughs> that's my day. So there, that is pure nostalgia. It's not good. It's terrible. I don't recommend it. It's like smoking. I don't recommend you start, but I, uh, it is something. I, I, I uh, spaghetti, don't go back with SpaghettiOs. No. Don't, because I, Unless I did. Unless you're like me and you never quite gave them up. I, 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 I didn't forswear SpaghettiOs. I just sort of outgrew them and, um. Yeah, the, so I had a can, like my last can at maybe age 12. And then years passed, and in my early 20s, I decided, you know what, I miss SpaghettiOs. I haven't had them in a while, let's see what kind of high they give me. And I went to the store and I bought two cans. And I ate a can, and it was exactly the same. The the sense memory was just back, and it didn't fill me with nostalgia. It's like, well, that's the same chemical cheese, I remember. Huzzah, consistency. Uh, a week later... I like to think they're using the uh, same cheese. Like yeah. the same block. <laughs> it's just this <laughs> massive block they keep carving hunks off of. It's like the movie The Stuff. It just keeps growing. <laughs> it just keeps growing back. It's this big living organism. Uh... The next week, I ate the second can of SpaghettiOs, and my body said, fuck you. <laughs> that first one, I'm willing to give you a pass, but the second one, I cannot forgive, and I was so oh sick God, the rest fun. of the day. Yeah, don't go back with SpaghettiOs. Awesome. Uh, the answer uh, your second question. Oh, sorry, you, had, you didn't really give a, what was your uh, nostalgia? Oh, well, nostalgia for a film. Or just um, anything, really. What's your oh, nostalgia okay. for that's like, you know it's not good. 
something I well, but you but you have nostalgia yeah. for it and it will always be good to you. Um Laura Scudder's peanut butter. Okay. That that was my favorite food when I was three and it's still my favorite <laughs> food now. Um yeah, the like the really oily kind that's just peanuts and salt. Mm-hmm. I wasn't raised on like the skippy and the jiff and the homogenized peanut butters. Those were a little alien to me. Oh. So I'd go to friends' houses and they'd spread this weird sort of waxy peanut butter on their crackers. I was like, What is this? Yeah, I can't go with I can't where you go on this journey mm-hmm. I cannot follow. No, I I, I understand I'm unusual in this regard, yeah. but yeah, I liked the stuff that was really like the oil would separate and you have to stir it in, yeah. you have to store it in the fridge. It, it always weirded me out that people kept their their peanut butter in a cupboard. Like, no, that needs to go in the fridge. <laughs> I was so used to storing it in the fridge. I also got raw milk in my mom. Uh, oh, wow. You know, my mom forbade uh, sugary cereals uh, in my house, so I never had, like, Cap'n Crunch or Tricks. I had, like, grape nuts and oh, yeah. Wheaties. It works. Uh, right. uh, so those, a, those foods I was raised with, I like a lot. And answer your other question, mm-hmm. and it's something that you're right. We, we've talked about a lot, and it's been a long time since we've introduced anyone to it. Uh, for people who are mostly familiar with uh, entertainment journalism from America, or maybe even only like on the internet, mm-hmm. uh, Sight and Sound is a British magazine that's been going on for all nearly 100 years. I think it's about 90 now. Um, and uh, it is published by the British Film Institute, which is a charitable organization uh, that funds movies and is also big on uh, promoting mm-hmm. film as an art form and also preserving the heritage of cinema. They have been, for every decade since 1952, I think. Uh, 52, the, yeah, it was the first poll. Yeah, I know it's on the twos. I just wasn't mm. sure if it was 42 or 52 that they started. It was 52. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ever since 1952, they have been pulling together, culling together uh, a list, the most definitive list that they can. And they go further in this regard than any other list I've ever seen, even AFI. I'll explain that in a minute. Uh they've been trying to get the definitive list of what is considered currently to be the best movies ever made. And what they do is they put together a vast assortment. I think it's like hundreds of people now. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a huge amount of, of filmmakers and critics. Yeah. They put together some of the most respected critics from all over the world. Not just like the people, you know, mm. from the United States or maybe Britain, but like people from every country where they can find great critics and probably they should be doing even more, but you know they mm-hmm. gotta whatever. I don't. I'm not in charge of that. And they call, put together as many filmmakers as possible, and filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, John Waters, Mike mm-hmm. Lee, all of these people. They put together their own list, and everyone puts together a list of the top ten films ever made. And then the Sight and Sound oh. poll puts together one list of everybody a big master list, yeah. uh, compiling all of the best. Whichever nothing's ranked, whatever film gets the most votes is number one. Mm. And then downward, and there are ties if necessary. There hasn't been a tie for number one that I can recall. Not for number one, but there, there's ties every year. Yeah, ties or every one. decade. Uh, and uh, and they'll put together like the top 200. But then, and here's what makes this, that's cool in and of itself. Because what we're dealing with is people who almost uniformly really know what they're talking about. are mm. familiar with the whole of film history and aren't just, there's, they're trying to avoid things like recency biases. They're really trying to give you the history of film. Mm. Um there are filmmakers and critics in those lists who like to throw it for a loop. It's up to them. Yeah. They can choose whatever they want. But then that's the cool thing is it's not just a popularity contest where here's the top 200 and that's that. Oh, no. The sight and sound poll also takes everyone's votes and they split them up as necessary. So, for example, here's the list of all the votes together. Then they'll also provide you with a list of all the films that won strictly based on filmmakers, mm. people who from that side of the industry. And here's the list from film critics 
slightly different list, isn't it? And then, and this is my favorite part, they have a database where you can look up everyone's top 10 list based on name. You can or look you can look up, up or, the film and look for everyone yeah, who voted for it. And in, they have a list of every film that was voted for. Even and, once. Uh, and my, my favorite part of that is the bottom half of the list of all of the films that only got one vote. Mm-hmm. Because there are some really fascinating films now. Somebody yeah. thought enough about that one film to, to include it on a top yeah, ten they list. They thought, listen, I only get one chance at this, mm. and even though I'm probably the only person who's going to vote for it, it's not going to rate. Mm. It will forever be part of the list. Mm. And as a result, you get a really interesting list. And it's not, the top 200 is usually pretty dang good. Like, it's not mm. a lot to complain about. And then almost anything else at least gets a mention. So if you love cinema, you just dive in. Mm-hmm. If you if there's one particular critic or filmmaker you're super interested in, find their list, go through that list. It's super exciting. I would consider it the greatest honor in the world yeah, if you and I were both uh, well, asked to, to participate. There's going to be another one next year, so our, the, to, to, our time isn't up yet. I know, right? Well, they'll, and then they'll, they'll ask us, and they'll have another ten years. I hope I live that long. <laughs> um, so, so that's what's cool about that. The AFI is basically the BFI idea, except it's supposed to be strictly for American movies films, made in America. Yeah. The BFI yeah. list is literally every movie in the world. It's got films mm. from every country. It's got everything is eligible. The AFI Top 100 is actually kind of um, kind of nationalistic. They're supposed well, to only uh, be films that were made in America mm. by Americans, or or at least for American co-production. There's a right. few that seem kind of nebulous. Some of the, yeah, like British. So like Seven Samurai isn't eligible, mm. even though it usually ranks in the top ten of the Sight and Sound poll yeah. the, uh, for the AFI list. And the frustrating thing about the AFI list is it, it's compiled differently. It's not just a poll. Mm-hmm. They don't poll American filmmakers to choose the best. Of- I think they do some, but it's, no. it's, I remember some people talking about it. Like, I know mm. Spielberg, I remember hearing Spielberg voted. Okay. And uh, then when he found out, like, I think the original list had, like, a bunch of Spielberg films. Mm. And Spielberg was like, hey, can you take off a couple of mine and maybe mm. add, like, some of these other movies that you missed? And they were like, no, the votes are the votes, which okay. is fair, but, like... like from, from what I understand, it's a much smaller voting body, it and it's, you know, like... As such, it's, I find, a much more limiting list. And it also feels a lot more like a publicity stunt. Because I remember when they released the list and there was this big TV special and they're counting down Mm. all the movies and took two hours out of, you know, co-opted Star Trek that Mm. evening. And... uh, I, I love yeah, the, pre, the pre, 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 excuse, anger I, I said co-opted, head. preempted uh, yes. uh, Star Trek. Yeah, co-opted, like co-opted. all of a sudden. Pat- they co-opted Star Trek. Star Trek was all on there. Yeah, the card was just like. It's commercial now. It's bullshit. It phases to number 49, the African Queen, <laughs> starring the great Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> just shoots DVDs of the African Queen at the, at, at the Borg. Captain, there's something on our sensors. It's Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Uh... <laughs> So the uh, the AFI list is well known here in the United States because it is a film of a uh, list of films from the United States. Uh, we cite the AFI poll just because it's so exciting to us as film enthusiasts uh, for films around the world. And, oh, we, uh, you mean the sight and sound poll? You the, said we cite the AFI poll. Oh, sorry, I meant, I meant we the cite sight, the sight and sound we, poll most we often like because, because we think that's a more interesting list. It's a more interesting list. It seems to be a little bit more holistic. If there is a way to gauge. Uh, the broad opinion on the world of cinema, this is about as close as we can get. Yeah. That seems like a pretty good technique. It's and not, nothing's ever going to be 
definitive. There's definitive no such because thing. yeah, there can't be a definitive. I disagree list, with it. About, yeah. Vertigo's been number one on sight and sound for like the last nine years. I've disagreed with it ever since. Well, uh, um, it, it was it came in number one at the last poll, which was in. That's my point. It's yeah. it, it, and that's the last poll. And then next time, maybe that'll be different. Who can say? But that's yeah, the so other big difference from, is that from the, fifty-two yeah. up until twenty twelve, uh-huh. uh, it was Citizen Kane was number one. Nope. First one was Bicycle Thieves. Oh, you're right. I apologize. First one was Bicycle Thieves. You're right. Then it was Citizen Kane consistently mm-hmm. at number one until 2012 mm-hmm. when Vertigo overtook Citizen Kane. Somehow I doubt that'll be the case this next time, but who knows? Maybe something mm-hmm. else will take the number one spot. The thing that I think is also really important about the uh, Sight and Sound list, more so than the AFI list, is that uh, Sight and Sound redoes the list consistently every 10 years. AFI did the list, then they updated it like once. And it really wasn't that different. There were like maybe like a few, full, films. few more recent films. There was like yeah. twelve. They got rid of Birth of a Nation on there. Good, mm-hmm. you know. There's a few things that got knocked off or bumped back on. Some of which I agree with. Some of them I don't. But um, it feels like the sort of thing they should be doing every ten years mm-hmm. or more often than that. Regardless, yeah. I feel like every because we still a lot of people still reference it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've, I've how many films in the AFI top 100 films uh, uh, list have you seen? And I'm like, uh, well. Almost, if not all of them at this point, but isn't it really time we revisit that list? Mm-hmm. It's been like 20 years since we first put it together. It seems like maybe we should have a new vote just to see. Because I bet Gone with the Wind won't rank as highly this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, really don't. So mm-hmm. anyway. Um, anyway, so that's the, that's the answer to that question. Uh, again, we'll get that sight and sound poll sometime in the next year, I hope. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you, yeah, you know my Twitter us. sight and ask sound. Us, yeah. Yeah, you, know, you know how to. I know you're listening. Sight and sound. Okay, so um, just to, to go off on a tangent for just a brief moment, you get to make your top ten list. Yeah. I'm sure you have a, a, a couple did, lists in your head. We did an episode of a podcast like that. One. Oh, we like, actually did a couple, yeah, yeah, where we did a top ten list. Here's and then, what uh, we would pick if we voted, and yeah. then we updated that like a few years later. And mm-hmm. I, I, I tried to do a, a entirely new top ten list. Mm-hmm. Like so now I have a top twenty just sort of floating around. But sure. the. Uh, the impulse to be a little bit naughty is le- lurks within every critic. And uh, I'm wondering what would be like the film that only you and no other critic or filmmaker would vote for. The film that, that only you would, that, like what, what wrench would you try to throw into the monkey? Well, I've, I've already gone on the record of what I put on there. So I don't know what only I would put on there. I know I was very adamant. I'd still stand by this, mm. that I would put the Rocky Horror Picture Show on it because I think okay. it transcends cinema at this point And you kind of yeah. have to recognize that. Uh, but I don't think I'm the only person who would vote for that. There's probably at least a handful of others. Mm-hmm. Um, damn, what is the only, film only I would put on that? Mm-hmm. Executioners from Shaolin. Okay. Uh, I think it's a really landmark film in the kung fu genre. I think it's a genre that is too often overlooked all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, or, if not Executioners from Shaolin, uh, Legendary Weapons of China. I think I might want to include yeah, one, of the, to, one a, of the classics. A good so yeah, kung fu classic. On yeah, list. because they're not ju- they're not just great fight movies. They mm. are also great fight movies, but they actually have a lot going on. Mm. So um, that's a topic for another time. But uh, that might be something that I put right. on there that might be unlikely. I guess some people might. I don't recall seeing that on the AFI list or the sight mm. and sound list before. But maybe there was, and I, yeah. I, I wouldn't be the only one. What about you? Um, uh, I, I, others might actually vote for this, but I'm, I stand very firmly by the Tingler. The William yes. Castle film from 1960, um, because it's one of the best of all movies. Uh, I, I don't, I don't disagree. It, it, it reminds us the importance of the theatrical experience, mm-hmm. and 
the fact that you are in a room with other people is a vital part of seeing it. Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult thing to convey when you're watching it at home on home video. Uh-huh. But I think in terms of pure showmanship, mm-hmm. that's not something we, we get to discuss a lot in terms of film. No, it's true. And I think even beyond Rocky Horror, Rocky Horror wasn't designed for that. It just happened. Tingler was designed for it. Yeah. Literally. Mm-hmm. So that'd be a good one. Mm. Anyway, but that's a great letter. Thank you so much. And we love being reminded of things that we haven't explained in a while mm. because we remember explaining things like I, we explained this like eight years ago. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people haven't, <laughs> haven't seen been listening to us for eight years. Yeah, come on. We, so we, we have didn't. to we have to go back. We have to go back and explain some stuff once Re- in a while. Reiterate. So if we, if we keep saying stuff and you're just like, yeah, you, I'm not a hundred percent sure what you're talking about. Mm. Please ask us. Well, we'd love to talk. I mean, yeah. you're more than welcome to look it up yourself, obviously. But if you want us to get into it. For everybody's sake, please do. We'd be more than happy to. So, so that's, that's the sight and sound poll yeah. that we talk about all thank the time. Thank you for asking. Uh, here's a letter from Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Um, hello, William Bibiani and Whitney Seibold. Uh, in some, in one of your most recent We've Got Mail episodes, you had some writers uh, some writers ask some rather deep and important questions that led you to talk about death, the quarter-life crisis, and the like. Uh, and you finished those letters. Uh, William usually asks for something that is a little more fun. So I figured I'd ask five simple, fun questions that are okay. meant to be an entertaining palate cleanser if you should need them. Well, let's do it. I like mm. it. I like having... Mm. Uh, it, it, life is also frivolity. <laughs> let's not forget. The, the sublime and the ridiculous uh, yeah. bear equal weight. Uh, if you care, I'll put my answers uh, in brackets after each question. Sure, let's do it. Uh, number one, if you could be a professional Muppeteer and bring one of the cast to life flawlessly, who would you pick? <sighs> I would pick Pepe the Prawn. That's a great pick. <laughs> uh, cl- my pick is obviously Gonzo. I yep, would okay, but 100% you, be Gonzo. You love Gonzo, but let yeah. me ask you a question. Do you think you're the absolute best choice to be Gonzo, or is there another mm. Muppet who you might actually be even better at doing, even mm. though he's not your favorite? Um, he or she? Uncle Deadly. That was my pick. <laughs> I could be Uncle Deadly. My pick is Uncle Deadly. Or, I think it'd be an amazing Uncle Deadly. Or Sam Eagle. It's just okay. like, like the straight I be, man. I think it'd be a funny Sam yeah. I think it'd be a really, really good Uncle Deadly. Otherwise, I think I'd want to be Statler and or Waldorf. <laughs> there you go. I think, I'd be, I think it'd be a good uh, peanut gallery. I think that'd be, mm. that'd be good for me. <laughs> it could be worse. How could it be worse? There could be more of it. Um, uh, number two, if you could pick to be any race from the Star Trek universe, what race would you pick? If Whitney picks the Vulcan, what would be his second choice? Okay. Klingon would be too exhausting. Uh, Bajoran post-Cardassian occupation post-Dominion War seems nice. <laughs> but, um, but Bajoran, there's a lot of baggage there. Uh, I wouldn't want to be a Vulcan, or I wouldn't want to be a Klingon because I'm not uh, I'm not a pirate. See, that's uh, the thing. It's not about, like, oh, I want to, like, have the strength of a bloody... But you're actually asking yourself what culture would you like to grow up in. Yeah. Because Star Trek is really concerned with that. So mm. that's actually not an easy question for me. Mm. Well, yeah, and I wouldn't want to be Vulcan because um, I, I do understand the appeal of Vulcans to a lot of audience members. Uh, Vulcans don't have to deal with those pesky emotions for people who are, like, perhaps really socially awkward yeah. uh, and who are a little bit baffled by human, ex- uh, just human interaction. Being emotionless takes the complication out of that. You only respond logically, and that's easy to grasp. Yeah. Um, but if you're talking about what kind of culture I want to want to grow up in... I think I know my uh, answer. Hmm. Let me think for just a moment here. You got this. Yeah, like, like as, as fun as it would be uh, to be a changeling, I, I wouldn't want to grow up in, like, the changeling lake and, do you, like, do you, do you really run armies like, and be, stuff. Do you really be liquid, yeah. like, in a jar for a while? I mean, I'm asleep. What is, what's, what's the difference? Yes. I may as well be liquid. Ah, fair enough. Mm. I like to thrash. 
I think I, in the middle of the like, eh, covers. I don't know. I <laughs> well, you're just snug in a bucket. Right. But again, hmm. I don't know. Oh, that's a, I, here's that, what I would pick. That's a rough question. I, for tough me, question, for me actually, yeah. because I'm a very emotional person, uh-huh. I think I'd actually like to be a betazoid. I just never speak and read people's thoughts and emotions. Yeah, I mean, you can speak yeah. if you wanted to. They can, but like you know, it's they, the, if you're... They, they've said on the show that it's a very quiet place. There's not a lot of verbal communication. Right, but we we don't need to, do we? So, and again, they, they're allowed to go join the federation and speak verbally if they want. So. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think I would like to uh, maybe live in my emotions and be a more healthy emotional person. Okay, I think that's probably my choice. Yeah. That yeah. or a triple. <laughs> just be a triple. Yeah, why not? I'll be a Baku, like an uh, insurrection. Okay. Just hang, hang out on a farm. That doesn't sound too bad, yeah. does it? Like, it, it, it's a boring-ass movie, but you know, I could live a boring-ass life. That's boring easy. Ass life. I, I don't know if I could wear that much tan. I think I'd wanna, <laughs> I think, can we dye something let's, like let's, a fun color for once? Are, aren't there, like, berries or something that's, like, brightly colored in this we universe? all this time. We want to, you want to, like, yeah. make a... Arcade cabinet or something? What are we doing here? You can choose beige or brown or mother of pearl or or putty. What other colors you got? Uh, question number three. What, uh, would you choose the ability to effortlessly fly at one quarter walking speed or be able to teleport anywhere two times a month? Uh, their choice is teleport. Okay. Well, the implication is teleport without complication. Like, oh no, I I'm teleported in a wall, into a rock. Man. Yeah, that kind of thing. So, uh, if that were the case, th- yeah, I guess I teleport somewhere two times a month. Yeah, for sure. I, I, that said, I've always loved the idea of like floating. I always thought it would be very like tranquil. Mm. Uh, but um, Actually, if, I, you know, we don't. I don't get to travel very often, so mm. that would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I could effortlessly fly at one quarter walking speed and sleep at the same time, I'd do that. That'd be cool. Uh, question number four from the following three franchises pick one uh, one to be a part of the cast uh, one to stop and have no more movies produced and one to remove from all history between Star Wars uh, Marvel and the Fast and the Furious okay so Star Wars mm. Marvel Fast and Furious mm-hmm. I'm writing it down so I don't like that's a lot well, when that's it comes, a lot of things all of a sudden when it comes to removing a film from history mm-hmm. I would choose just about any film just as an experiment yeah like, I think the most interesting... Now, the, and yeah. the implication being, I would still have memory of its existence. Right. But, and, no, but one else no one else would. would. I think the one that, if you just want to see what would happen, uh-huh. I think the one you remove from existence is Star Wars. Yeah, Because the sure. entire history of cinema for the last 25... No, like 30... Like 40 years. Like 40 yeah. years would be completely different. Hmm. Like, the first year, couple of years, not a lot of differences, but from the 80s onward cinema would be very, very different if we had no Star Wars. Uh, So that would be the one that I would remove, I think, also just sort of to see. Uh Um, And then what we're left with is Marvel and Fast and Furious, and we're looking for what one we want to uh, stop here and where it lies, and which one do you want to be in the cast of. Um, Well, I'd want to... We've had enough of those Marvel shows. We're good. We can stop. We're just done. That one's one's just going to stop right here. Okay. So you want to be in the cast of Fast and Furious. Don't even air the next WandaVision. Just stop it right here. And uh, and, yeah, sure. I could could drive a fast car with Dom Toretto. I could look like I drive a fast car with Dom Toretto. Like, you can put Mm. me against the green screen and I'm fine. Mm. And I agree. I actually think as much as I love a lot of Marvel stuff... um, It had a really good run. So if you want to stop (laughs) that shit now, that's fine. I like... That of the big blockbuster franchises, Fast and Furious started small. It was mm. a modest 
car chase movie. It was a knockoff film. It was it was, a, it was, it was a Point Break point, with cars. It was yeah, a shameless ripoff of Point Break, and it was Point Break with cars. Not a bad pitch, but it was a shameless ripoff of Point Break. And then they had a couple of movies after that, and then finally they're like. Hey, we had a lot of characters in all of these sequels. Why don't we just put them all together and then turn it into the biggest action movie franchise of all time <laughs> with the most multicultural cast of any blockbuster mm. franchise? And a part of me is like, bravo. Well done. Yeah, good job. I mean, they're not all amazing, but holy shit. That's really cool shit. So like, they're all, you know what? They're all, except for four, they're all just brazenly entertaining those movies some more so than others yeah. and even four isn't like awful it's just confusing and badly edited mm. and it's it's all setting the stage for five so i'm really really willing to forgive it <laughs> but yeah four is probably the worst mm. but yeah i yeah i would think fast and furious is the one i want to be i want to be right. a part of that Fair. sounds like a same good same yeah uh, right. They answered, be a part of Star Wars, stop Marvel, and disappear Fast and Furious. Oh, okay. Well, a little yeah. different. And fifth question, if you could choose one song to have com- composition credit for, what would you choose? Oh, I couldn't. Uh, I please, couldn't take credit for Please something. don't let this be about money. Yeah, I, I, I'd want to take credit for the one I wrote. Yeah, exactly. That would be the mm. thing I'd want to do. I don't know. Like, if, yeah. if, I'm, if you're thinking about like that movie yesterday, where like you go back in time, where you go into an alternate reality where the Beatles mm. never existed, and those songs only exist in your head and you might as well take credit for them. Um, yeah, I don't know if I, I didn't even know if I could do that. I would, uh, what's something, is there anything that's like anonymous? Like, Oh yeah. Well, how Ave about, Maria written by Bibbs? Yeah. Choose something in the public domain. <laughs> there you take go. credit for that one. There you go. You know, I was very fond of, uh, I wrote for he's a jolly good fellow. When I was in elementary school, uh, they taught us, I went to a pretty hip elementary school because they were teaching us a blues song called The Blues My Naughty Sweetie Gives to Me. And that's in the public domain now. I want songwriting credit on that. There you go. Going back to nostalgia. Um, uh, If you like to read my letter, I hope you both are doing well and give Luca a scratch behind the ear. I will do that. And an extra hit of catnip for me. Sincerely, Jerry. I don't know if he needs more energy right now. One second. Where is is that little guy? Mm Luca, buddy? Where are you at? He's hiding. All right. Is that staying in the podcast? That's staying in the podcast. <laughs> You're Luca, a little scratch. Yeah. He was very grateful. Um, Thank you. Here's a letter from Name Redacted. There's no okay. no no name. No name. On this one. No credit. If if, if you don't yeah if you don't sign if there's nothing signed at the bottom um, there's no name on the letter and you can. Re- Retain your anonymity. If you choose. Um, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. My name is Joshua. Oh. Okay, never mind. <laughs> now that's staying up. All right, fine. <laughs> Got egg on my face there. My name is Joshua. <laughs> I'd first like to say thank you so much for consistently and successfully creating new content for us all throughout this bittersweet year. I said bittersweet because even though we had this horrific pandemic and all the protests and that I lost my grandpa in February and lost my oh. job in the airline industry. Oh my God, I'm so I would sorry. also like to remember this year because in January I was single, a single man living in Miami and now I have an amazing girlfriend and a beautiful baby girl wow. and working at my new job in Dallas. So yeah, well, definitely a memorable on... year for me personally. Wow, yeah. lots, lots of ups and downs That's there. a huge year mm. and I'm sorry for the stuff that sucks, but I'm really, mm. really happy for all the things mm. that are going well for you. That's amazing and it's so easy to get swept up in all the negativity and all mm. the bad things that have happened this last year. We need to remember that some really nice things can happen. Yeah, so yeah, that's great yeah. to hear. Thank you so much for that. Snuggle that baby for me. Because <laughs> babies are babies. Um, 
So yeah, definitely a memorable year. You guys have been there through it all for me. So thank you. And now I, it was hard on you guys too. So here's hoping 2021 is a relaxed and boring year. Wouldn't that be nice? We're off uh, to an awkward start on that level. Uh, we're in the we're, 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 right we're, now, we had to, we, we collapsed over the finish line and we have to yeah. get back up. Um, I want to send you guys my top 10, but I realized I haven't seen that many 2020 movies and there's still much more to catch up on. So instead I made a list of all the new films that I've seen for the first time this year. Okay. You cool. guys recently talked about how all forms of filmed media can be referred to as a film. So my list of, is of movies and TV shows. Great. That's fine. Uh, in no particular order, here's my list. Number 10, Sharp Objects. I, I still haven't I don't seen know this. Sharp Objects. We just talked about this uh, when we did a, a review of Utopia. Because Sharp Objects was also done by Gillian Flynn. So we haven't seen this, but please okay. tell us a little bit. Uh, uh, number nine, Philadelphia. Okay. I'm guessing that's the Jonathan Demme movie. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good one. Yeah. Uh, number eight, The Leftovers. I never quite got into it. I kind of mm. just felt like it was just kind of sad. The and Nicolas Cage them. movie? No, 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 no. You're thinking of Left Behind. The Leftovers oh, yeah. was that HBO series about like, without ever explaining it, it's like the rapture, like a certain, like 10% of oh, humanity okay, yeah. just disappeared all of a sudden. And it's just about everyone who's left behind and they never get any explanation. And they're all just dealing with this weird trauma. Hmm, um, sure. It was an interesting series. I just right. never quite got into it, but I can see why right. people like it. Uh, number seven, avatar, the last airbender. Okay. Uh, I like, I like bender. Well, I, ben, okay. bender's not in the show though. So that's too bad. Uh, number I six. We're talking about the TV show because the TV show is amazing. Well, it's called it, the the movie's just called The Last Airbender. You're correct. My apologies. So we are talking mm. about the TV show. The TV show is amazing. Mm. Okay. Uh, I've seen maybe six episodes, and it's, okay. it's fine. Um, you, it gets better over time. It's okay. like, it starts out good. It gets amazing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, number six, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, it's, it's like a it's a hair too cringy for me. It's not my, <laughs> it's not my style of humor. I, I've, I've and... watched a, a lot of it, and I appreciate mm. it. But yeah, I can't like mainline that. I have to watch an episode. Yeah wait a couple weeks and then watch another episode. It's this really, really bitter kind of humor. And it was rough. Actually, I was never a huge fan of Seinfeld, but I admired the way they constructed narratives in unexpected ways. Like it was very interestingly mm. structured show. I mean, like every, the jokes built and sort of fell on top of each other in unexpected ways. And I admired that, but everything was just really mean a lot of the time. And there's something about Curb Your Enthusiasm that just like, feels like all of that negativity for me. Yeah. And I know a lot of people find that really cathartic or funny mm-hmm. or even relatable. And I get that. But for me, I just like, you know what? I just don't want to hang out with Larry David. <laughs> I just don't want to hang out with him. I don't. It don't seem, mm. doesn't seem like a fun time to me. So for me, that's a, but that's a purely personal taste. All I appreciate right. that. It's a very a lot of A show. lot of people love Korean enthusiasm. I get it. I, I and I, I've enjoyed bits of it, but I can't I, get deep into I've it I've enjoyed bits of it, do. too. I just can't yeah. live there. Okay. So like that's my thing. So I respect um, it, but it's not for me. Yeah. Uh, number five, My Dinner with Andre. We have a Yay. podcast devoted to it. Uh, number we got four. some more episodes that's coming up of that soon. There we go. Yeah. Uh, number four, I Am Not Your Negro. Uh, oh, the documentary, yeah, yeah, yeah I saw that. James Baldwin. Um, number three, Lovecraft Country. I saw a, th- a third of an episode. I haven't gotten. Yeah. I was gonna sit down with that like over Christmas break because mm. I was like saving it, and then I never got around to it. I need to sit down with it. Right. It was really good. Uh, number two, Cinema Paradiso. I watched it for the first time like two days ago. I will be watching it for yeah. the first time in the, within the next two days. All right, and number one, Searching for Bobby Fisher, which Yay! I watched for the first time last week, uh, which is also William's favorite movie. It's true. Oh, well, that's, that, a cool that's list. yeah. That's a great list. I I appreciate that we have um, a, a different flavor of lists coming in. It's not mm-hmm. just like best films of a certain year. It's like yeah. people are having these fine, but, you know, broader experiences in this year when the movie industry was sort of thrown for a loop, and now people are kind of exploring in interesting ways. And yeah, I love super that. Exciting. I love it. 
Thank you so yeah. much for your letter. That was really great. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for keeping us abreast of what's going on in your life. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're having an amazing life. Yeah. I'm really happy for it. Uh, here's a letter from Daniel. We got letters from many Daniels. Um, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, in the past couple of years, I've tried to start reading some of the major film critics. I recently ordered and re- uh, received Andrew Sarris' book, The American Cinema Directors and Directions, 1929-1968, which I'd read was his most influential work. On reading the opening essay, a couple of passages struck me, and I thought I'd run it by you guys. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I haven't read Andrew Sarris, but I know Andrew Sarris. I'm work, familiar but, with yeah. him, but I haven't read this book either, yeah. so... Uh, the context of this portion of the essay is Sarah's talking about Cahiers du Cinema having a, quote, policy in which films of favored directors were invariably assigned to specialists in those directors on the grounds that, quote, the best review of any film will be written by the critic who best understands the film, usually because he is most sympathetic to it. Uh, Sarah's then asks... Why does this sound so heretical in the United States? Probably because most movie reviewers fancy themselves as magistrates of merit and paid taste consultants for the public. He writes Walter Kerr as defining, quote, the difference between reviewing and criticism as the difference between assuming that your reader has not seen the work in question and assuming the reader has. That part's probably pretty apt. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, reviewing is thus a consumer report for the uninitiated. Criticism is a conversation with one's equals. Mostly, it, 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 that's, yeah, that I, might sound a little snotty, but I think that's that's apt. I I, I think uh, mm. when you're looking at, I think there is definitely a difference between just trying to tell people, I saw this movie, here's what I thought of it, here's mm. the gist. Maybe you'll be interested, maybe you're not. I do think there's a big difference between that and getting knee deep into the movie and really examining and pulling apart all the detail yeah. and. In my work, I've always tried to combine the two. The part I don't necessarily agree with is that top bit where the person who like has is an expert in a filmmaker is the mm. person who should write about them. They're one of the people who should write. No, about I, them. I, I, I think ev- everyone every has, every yeah. perspective is is has yeah. some value. That doesn't mean they uh, always have the right context to uh, mm. maybe parcel out things in the way that the filmmaker intended. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but sometimes fi- that's really fil- interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what the filmmaker intended might not be what the audience gets. So exactly. yeah, what the filmmaker intends is, yeah. is so I value, kind of not, not necessary to the conversation. I value writing about the people who write about Hitchcock, mm-hmm. who've seen every Hitchcock movie and everything mm-hmm. there is to know about Hitchcock, but a fresh perspective on Hitchcock that isn't like, that isn't just like, oh, I don't know anything about Hitchcock and here's, here's what I got from it. Like, no, you need to like engage with the text yeah. and really do it strong. Yeah. But like, that can be really, really valuable. Uh, He continues to go. He says, however, Saris then qualifies his position by stating that, quote, the more fastidious film publications neglect their obligations to the medium by restricting their critiques to the films and directors they like to avoid passing judgment on a film because of a lack of sympathy is an act of intellectual arrogance. Nothing should be beneath criticism or contempt. Finally, Saris argues that his hedged, quote, transcendental view disarms either or critics of auteur theory by positioning the theory as the first step rather than the last step and a system of tentative priorities, a pattern of theory in constant flux. He notes that no critic can entirely escape responsibility for his, of his own values. Elucidation must yield at some point to evaluation. All of that is meaningless and it's not necessarily successful. Um, do you guys buy the distinction Saris makes between reviewing and criticism? That one basically. And, and yeah, is his defense of the auteur theory as more of a tool for illuminating the patterns and personal artistry in a director's work than the be all end all persuasive? Anyway, sorry for the many long quotes, yeah. uh, but that whole section struck me as particularly meaty yeah. and going to the nature of criticism itself. So I hoped it might give you guys something interesting to discuss. As always, thanks for all you do, Daniel. Well, we're still talking about, thank you, Daniel. Mm-hmm. We're still talking about a lot of these topics on a regular basis. And. 
I think yeah, I think Saris gets to some of that. And again, I haven't read Saris's book. I don't know. Maybe he mm. might go into more detail that might cover everything I'm about to say or might completely dismiss everything I'm about to say. I don't know. Uh, so I'm not an expert here. I'm mm. not the person who should be writing a review of Andrew Saris, according to the Kaki Age of Cinema, for example. But um, when it comes to auteur theory, there's a lot of different lenses through which you can re- look at art. Mm. If you look at it as the work of a distinct author, uh, that might work in a medium where the author has complete control. Mm. Uh, but in a collaborative medium, it starts to fall apart really, really fast. Fast. Yeah. What auteur theory can be useful for is when you look at filmmakers who seem to put a distinctive stamp on their work, as opposed to many filmmakers who less so. Mm. Uh, so when you notice, for example, that all Spielberg's films seem to have daddy issues in them, because he has a lot of unresolved issues mm. with his dad, and he's talked openly about this, uh, that makes sense, and that seems like something that he's, he at least is is gravitates towards. Mm. So that seems to be something that he is that seems to find itself into his work, and it's worth exploring in that regard. Uh, does that mean that the writers of his movies aren't also responsible for that? Mm. Does that mean that the cinematographer isn't also evoking that, or the edit? No, of course not. But it's one way of looking at it mm. of, of many. Yeah. Um. Uh, of the arts and criticism is an art. Um, Criticism itself kind of gets a bum rap a lot of the time uh, because of where it stands in uh, modern popular culture. Uh, It does serve as in many ways, a consumer report and uh, a lot of people treat it it like a consumer report. Uh, Even actual reviewers Mm -hmm. and critics treat it like a consumer report. Yeah. Is this worth your money? Well, there's so much, Uh, is this worth your time? And time is more my, my factor than money because like no one has time to watch everything. Even we don't. Yeah. So we're trying to make sure that Mm. you at least, you know, if there's something you never heard of, here's what yeah. we think and, uh, of it. Maybe this would be worth your that, time or not. That know. was the inspiration bet- uh, for uh, Siskel and Ebert to come up with thumbs up and thumbs down. Yeah. In fact, it was just Gene Siskel who thought of that up. You know, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, uh, Roger Ebert didn't think they should have a rating system. Yeah, they like, let's just talk, talk about, about the, the movie, movie and yeah. then people can decide. And Gene Siskel said to Roger Ebert, people don't want to know our theories on French filmmakers. They just want to know whether or not they should see it. And so yeah. they came up with this really easy codified answer, thumbs up, thumbs down. And they got trapped in that box. They kind of, they liked it and they hated it at the same yeah. time because they resented its simplicity, but they also appreciated its simplicity. And, and we're kind of the same way in mm. our format for our main mm. review podcast, Critically Acclaimed, because we like to just have a long conversation about it, good mm. and bad. But we know that some people are interested in whether or not we're recommending it. We mm. want to at least pay some lip service to that but we came up with a system that is a little less binary mm. and is also doesn't sound as definitive because we use a c minus to a c plus right <laughs> that, was con- that was conscious yeah um but uh because uh they it still no matter how great the report the reporting and the criticism still has that l- bit of consumer report about it the perception seems to be, uh, and A.O. Scott writes very eloquently about it, this in his book, uh, Better Living Through Criticism. Uh, it seems like it's only going to be relevant uh, as long as the film is relevant. So it's the sort of like remora that's hanging on to the belly of the shark that is the actual film. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the shark swims away, the remora falls off and dies, and nobody yeah. cares about that. And, let, and, and uh, makes film, film criticism feel kind of parasitic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it relies on other art forms, so it's not an art form unto itself. The problem is 
criticism is just as permanent as the film. Uh, it's sure you might only be want, wanting to read a review the day, a couple days before the movie comes out or shortly after the movie comes out. And while the film is part of the larger conversation as Madison Avenue has dictated. But I think the better critics, most critics, understand that there is a permanence to film and that there's going to be a larger conversation that's going to continue to be had. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I, there's, and that goes beyond, I think, so just the, uh, whether or not just a film that, is that good kind of, yeah, well, and yeah, it's not about good or bad. It's yeah. about trying to, without broader context, figure out what this film is putting into, I, I, I'm going to say the marketplace of ideas. Right. Uh, so it's, it, it's more about, uh, criticism and reviewing are actually getting at the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just one, I think is being viewed on a, on a longer scale. Criticism is about looking back over a broad history. It's when you do have the context. Yes, yeah, criticism. I don't mm. think should. I mean, again, your the, mileage this will vary. Is and your go on, will go, vary. I'm jumping off of uh, Andrew Sarris. Yeah. yeah, we are, and, and we're also talking about our own take on mm. things. And I think Whitney, I think you'd agree with me on this. Mm. When we review a movie, we're not looking at it in a vacuum. We're not looking at it as this new thing that suddenly exists. Mm-hmm. We're looking at it against a broad history, a grand tapestry of the art. And as a result, I don't think that the criticism, at least the one, the stuff that we're interested in mm-hmm. um, is temporary or uh, I mean, it, it is in that it can be deleted at any time, but um, it's not intended to be temporary. It's not intended mm-hmm. to simply just, this is one of the reasons why I am mostly done with the idea of, um, okay, when you review this movie, you can't talk about any details in it because we got to worry about spoilers. Mm-hmm. We got to worry about spoilers for a week. <laughs> and then the rest and of then, history yeah. will only be interested in what's actually in the movie. The surprise will be mostly gone after a bit. Mm. That's a very temporary amount of time that a lot of people, when they're doing these sort of um, uh, first reaction type things, or if you want to call them reviews or just the consumer report part of it, they're concerned about preserving that. We will tell you if we're going to go through it. And generally speaking, if you know that if you're listening to us, we're probably going to go mm. into more detail than other film critics. There are some things that we don't want to ruin for you because we think that that's valid or particularly relevant. But we will also tell you what happens in the movie if it's necessary to have a good discussion. But um, if you are only concerned about preserving this week before the movie comes out, mm. then film criticism does feel very temporary. Yeah. But if you're actually having a longer conversation about how this interacts with other cinema, what's going on in the world today and in the past and maybe even the future, then it's different. Um, mm. I think that there's this interesting attitude that came up in one of the uh, quotes or maybe even something you said, um, where we're talking about how um, art criticism is sometimes seen as a little parasitic because it's a reaction to art. Mm. However, all art is a reaction to something. Yeah, well, I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, cr- Criticism is an art. Art is also criticism. Exactly. Uh, th- this is what we, uh, when we get into notions like the anxiety of influence, how the ma- art you're making actually is really just a reflection of the things that came before. It's not as striking or as original as you might think. And it's the word anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how ever, and also the conversation and the, the, the old drum we're constantly banging on how mm. all art is political. Yeah. Uh, because all art is a reflection of the society that's produ- producing it. The uh, art and... you make beca- is different than the art you would make if you lived in a completely different part mm. of the world and a different body, you know, in a different mm. time. Yeah. It would yeah, be so... different, no matter how many similarities mm. it would have. 
So when when you say this film isn't political, what you're really saying is this film affirms things I already believe and don't think about a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that's a political point of view. Mm-hmm. It happens to be on your wavelength. It matches your own personal political point of view, but mm-hmm. it's a political point of view. And anyone who doesn't share that political mm-hmm. point of view, anyone for whom mm-hmm. this uh, sort of uh, baseline reading of mm-hmm. the status quo uh, doesn't benefit them or they're very critical of it in some way, it will be a political film. Yeah. yeah. So that's just because it's not political, doesn't seem political to you, A, it is, it's just reassuring or at least doesn't challenge any norms mm. and B you're not the only one watching it, yeah, which is it the other value of criticism, which is, and again, another reason why just mm. experts in something shouldn't talk about it. We need a lot of different perspectives on something in order to have a particularly interesting takeaway from it. You can yeah. be the only person who sees a movie and have a reaction to it. And that's fine. When you talk to other people about it and you share your ideas, that just sort of, I don't know. It, it starts. It's like a shrinky dink. You know, you put a drop of water on it, and all of a sudden, oh, that's a bigger foam tyrannosaurus. Well, the, oh, you're thinking of the little uh, sponges that come in the capsules. Oh, those are shrinky dinks. What am I? What am I thinking? Shrinky dinks came on plastic sheets, and you cut them out, and you put them in the oven, and then ah, it shrinks. You're yeah. right. My apologies. I was just thinking yeah. of the little capsules, and you put a drop of water on them, and then boom, stegosaurus. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I'm thinking. Of. Oh, okay. like that's that's the film. You put a drop of water on it, and then a boom, stegosaurus. Put more water on it, you get a bigger stegosaurus. Yeah. So, so uh, I want the biggest stegosaurus I could possibly get. I found the dumbest metaphor I could possibly <laughs> have. Though, although, Take I, that, Andrew Saris. I know those little <laughs> cap- my book. Those little capsules do still exist, and I think it's fine. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the, the film is ca- stuffed in a little capsule and yeah. you have to let it out. Um, I don't know if Shrinky Dink still exists. I don't know. I haven't seen them in a while. I, I haven't done them since I was a kid. Write us in if you still use Shrinky Dinks. <laughs> Find a Shrinky Dink. <laughs> we dare you. Shrinky Dink is one of those toys like Mr. Potato Head or Etch a Sketch or, mm. or Pez Machines. Like they were just around and we used mm. them for kitsch value. A Did lot. you ever see uh, uh, the original Christmas in Connecticut? I forget. With I, uh, no, Barbara Stanwyck? No, I've. I saw Schwarzenegger's version. <laughs> That's the only one I've seen. It's not, it's not as good a film. I've, uh, I've, I've ori- seen very few Christmas movies. I forget I forget if it's in the Schwarzenegger version. I don't mm. think it is. But in the original version, Barbara Stanwyck in that movie plays like a Martha Stewart magazine columnist type, uh, you know, homemaker type stuff uh, in the 1940s. And she's so popular that when she wrote an article talking about how she had been having trouble finding a rocking chair like one her grandmother used to have in local antique stores, people were sending her rocking chairs. And she had like dozens in her basement. And they were starting to get annoying. Like, so don't send us shrinky dinks. That's all I'm saying. I don't think we really have that. But if you're tempted, don't send us shrinky dinks. However, if you find shrinky dinks, please let us know. Please let us know if they're still <laughs> yeah, out there. Just... We would at least like to know. Tweet us at Critic and Lamp. There you go. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Here, here's a letter from Fab. Hello, Fab. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. I just finished watching the 2020 documentary, The Last Blockbuster, okay. about the last blockbuster video rental store located in Bend, Oregon. Oh, I haven't seen that uh, yet. Through the interviews from actors, comedians, and various people of different walks of life, the documentary serves as a love letter to the near-defunct blockbuster video and the ritual of going to blockbuster on a Friday night, browsing for an hour, picking fight flicks which to watch with families and friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, the passing of time has made people who come out of the age, came of age in the '90s miss the face-to-face experience of talking to store employees for film recommendations, of driving to a place to pick up a movie with a family, or of getting to know a date based on the section of the store they gravitated to. Like the interviewees in The Last Blockbuster, I grew up in the 90s, early 2000s, renting VHS tapes, rewinding, and sometimes playing late fees. However, I could not relate to their love of Blockbuster video. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God. Uh, 
I much preferred to rent from mom and pop video stores because the selection of movies was bigger, more interesting, and eclectic, especially when it came to the horror genre. My favorite at the time, going to Blockbuster in 2004 meant being bombarded with dozens of copies of The Day After Tomorrow and Ocean's 12 and hardly anything indie or foreign. Meanwhile, a trip to Video Stage in my shabby town meant I could choose from obscure titles from the 70s and 80s to classics and and from an array of horror films. It was fun to pick a movie based on the zany and creepy art on the VHS box. Thank you, Black Roses. Uh, (laughs) Plus, it felt good to support the small businesses and not the mega box chain. So here is me asking, back in the day, was your preference Blockbuster or the independent mom and pop video rental stores or both? Mm. Uh, Did you have a favorite and... Uh, have you gotten the chance to watch the last blockbuster? If so, what are your thoughts? Great podcast guys. I really enjoy it. Sincerely fab. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, last question first. Have you seen the last blockbuster? I have not. Okay. So I, I, haven't I, I did. I saw clips of it. I saw like a preview, but yeah, um, I'm aware of its existence. I just haven't sat uh, down with it. Blockbuster video. Uh, I remember when they closed down, I actually wrote an article about how ambivalent that made us feel because yeah. the death of blockbuster was like the was, death of a parasite. Well, like, it, it was it was a sad thing, but, but it was because of it denoted the death of something larger that took out all video stores. Yeah. It, when we were actually renting, we wanted it to die, but we wanted just that one to die. Yeah, we wanted the mom and pop. Basically what happened, what happened is this. You ever see the movie You've Got Mail? <laughs> uh, it, it's basically like that uh, Tom Hanks is Blockbuster it's, Meg Ryan yeah. is everyone else and at the end instead of like getting together Tom Hanks simply killed Meg Ryan yeah. and then something else killed Tom Hanks and killed the bookstore altogether yeah. that's what yeah, Blockbuster yeah. was uh, there were a lot of mom and pop video stores and then uh, in the 80s when people started getting VCRs they were becoming affordable however tapes were still really expensive so it was more common to rent them for a couple of days yeah. like a formal library and as and, and when, stores when started they, getting yeah. more successful, they started becoming chains. It makes yeah. sense. That's when, how capitalism uh, works. And when they first started putting out VHS, they were made with some heavy-duty materials. If you wanted to buy one, it was anywhere from eighty to one hundred mm-hmm. and twenty dollars. And that's late eighty dollars. Yeah. That's late eighties dollars. Yeah. So they, again, wasn't cost-effective to buy a bunch of them. However, it was easy to rent them. So you bought one, you rented it out a few times, you made your money back. Everyone was happy. Um, it became like a social thing. We recently reviewed uh, the series High Fidelity on Hulu, yeah. uh, which is all set in a vinyl record store today, but it feels like a vinyl record store of like the 90s. It's like a social hub. Um, and so that was cool. You get to go out. You actually get to like put on clothes. You had to find parking. You had to put in a little effort to get something, and that made it a little bit more valuable. The downside is... Yeah, the selection wasn't always great. Sometimes the selection we have with streaming is better. Convenience is awesome. A lot of people didn't have a good video store near Mm -hmm. them. I'm not decrying streaming. There's good and bad that came with both. However, over time, Blockbuster, and to a lesser extent Hollywood Video, which died first, uh, Blockbuster took over the market, much like Starbucks took over the coffee market. Yeah, yeah. And well, now they're, and they were just everywhere, yeah. and the smaller places had trouble competing, and after well, a while, they, Blockbuster they, kind of was the only game in town in a lot of towns. They didn't just have trouble competing. Yeah. Blockbuster and and Barnes & Noble did this, or not Barnes & Noble, Borders, Borders, Borders did this mo- most aggressively. Yeah, yeah. They would actually... This was like the most aggressive business tactic possible. They all were well-established, they had a lot of money, and they could open a lot of branches. Where would they open branches? Where do you choose to open a new branch? They would seek out 
the locations of mom and pop stores mm-hmm. and open nearby on purpose. Yep. The nearest blockbuster to me where mm-hmm. I grew up was on the same block as a mom and pop video yep. store. Yeah. There, yeah. There was a, you go to a blockbuster, there's always going to be a better block, a better video store, like at least within two blocks of it. Yeah. Um, I went to 2020 video. It used to be on uh, Wilshire Boulevard in Santa Monica, California. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. Um, that was my local video store. Uh, and that was also a then, chain. It was, it was yeah. a local chain. It was, it was, it was a local chain. chain. Yeah. And uh, 2020 was, I think there might still be one 2020 video over on uh, uh, Sepulveda. But uh, yeah, it hung in there for a long, long time. Porn kept it alive. Oh, if you're that's, Cause, cause, I think I know the one you're thinking of that's gone. Oh, is it the one? I, uh, to okay. the best of my knowledge, they're all gone. Okay. But um, that was, Blockbuster Video was the worst video store. It was terrible. They had a really crappy selection. They were always laid out in a really frustrating way. They had to lay the boxes out on shelves fa- with the cover facing you. Mm-hmm. And there was always like a few inches in between one. So they weren't filling the shelves. Yeah, they could have. They could they have could had have, a lot more product. They could have had no, like more four, four times as much as bigger bigger mm-hmm. selection, but they didn't do that. And they always had like fewer things on the smaller shelves because they didn't mm-hmm. want people to have to like look and bend over. Yeah. So now, there's, yeah, it was awful. There is still nostalgia for the video store experience, but I would argue that Blockbuster gave you the shittiest video store experience. Right. My point is this. After a while, Blockbuster was the only game in town, mm. and it was the only game in town for a while. Mm. And as a result, a lot of people grew up with Blockbuster being their video store. So people are people miss Blockbuster because it was the best they could get. Mm. But again, it's like, hey, we had the literally... Like, if you look at, like, the Zagat Guide or whatever the hell it is, the best burger joint in America. Mm-hmm. But then they opened a bunch of McDonald's around it, and now it's dead. And now you've, you're have you nostalgic for McDonald's hamburgers, and you don't know to be nostalgic for the good hamburger that used to be there. <laughs> um, and I'm not trying to be condescending. I just think, you know, we grew up, some people grew up with Blockbuster, and some people grew up in the era before Blockbuster took everything over. Mm, yeah. And it feels like Blockbuster has now took over our nostalgia for video stores, which is just extra ironic. Mm. Um so they, I, yeah, they I mean, won. They won our memory as well. And and they were, uh, when Netflix was sort of moving in on their territory, they tried that for a while. I remember they had their own mail order service. They did. But they, it was, actually, it, they actually sold with DVDs. And yeah. they still have that. Yeah. yeah, yeah not yeah. everyone uses it, but they still have that. Yeah, and, still and, that. and if they wanted to survive, they could have dumped a lot of money into a streaming service. I'm sure they would have competed with Netflix. Maybe they would have killed first, each other. But by that point, the damage had been done. Yeah, so uh, they, they just didn't have the money anymore. But yeah. Blockbuster was awful. They had really bad selection. They didn't have uh, films for adults. No. Uh, not, not just porn. If there yeah. was something that was... Porn ever... would have kept them alive, but they were trying mm. to be family friendly. Yeah, well, and, yeah. and the, the rumor was, and I actually don't know how true this is, but some ultra-religious like right-wing CEO took over mm. and started making making these decisions that they're actually going to a not uh, carry rough quote rougher movies like NZ 17. Yeah, they and, wouldn't and have anything yeah. too sexy. They wouldn't have in the, in the store. Um, if they were going to carry like a soft core sex flick, they always had to get like the rated version of it. Yeah. Which a lot of companies did anyway. They had yeah. like an unrated and an unrated. Yeah. Uh, and most notoriously, and this is true. They, Censored their, their videos. Yep. Re-edited them. Sent weird. Um, I remember, uh, you ever actually said that, that the, sounds like it's, it's like apocryphal, but it, it actually no, that, is confirmed. If you can find <laughs> the blockbuster version of showgirls, uh, where they like CG'd in like early two thousands, last minute, whatever CG. Oh, well that, they, that's, that's not quite true. That oh, was, that that was showtime that did that showtime. When showtime that. wanted to broadcast that on television, they had like the floating brassiers uh, in CG over their breasts. Really? Okay. That, so I yeah, thought that, that was, was block, that, that was a blockbuster version. Okay, no, but, my bad. but they my did, bad. they did slice little bits of sex and violence out of their movies without mm. consulting anybody. They yeah. just did it of their own impetus. Yeah. 
And I, I remember uh, renting some cheesy horror film and there was like a, such a jarring cut. Like I didn't know what happened in the scene. Mm-hmm. It was like a big chunk missing. That was why I actually, I still haven't seen E2 Mama Tambien because mm. when it came out, I missed it in theaters. Mm. And then the only video store that was left available to me at the time was Blockbuster. And Blockbuster had this, oh, we cut that shit down. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, why would I want to rent that? Mm. I wouldn't. I'm not going to. And so I actually never got back around to it. I really need to hear something. Yeah, so it, if, if yeah. you were really eager to see a film that was like huge in theaters and you missed it in theaters and you just wanted to catch up with the big popular movie. Yeah. They got you covered because they had 50 copies of that one movie. Loved Ocean's you're 12. Real. We've got 1,200. Yeah, yeah. Your local video store might have three and then yeah. they'd sell off the other two eventually. But uh, yeah, Blockbuster had all of them. And because they always had this huge volume of new films, they were a good place to go scrounging. Yeah. Like wait, wait like six, six months to a year after a film is new and you can pull it out of a three ninety nine bin and just add yeah, it to yeah. a collection. You have to pick at those stickers that never came off of the box. I had this great experience where uh, when it, as horrible as it was that these big video store chains were mm. uh, leaving and which basically mostly killed the video store market. We're very lucky. We have one video store up the street from us still and it's one of the best in the country. Mm. Cinephile. It lives. It lives on. Still going even if, with the if pandemic. You, if you live in Southern California, go there. It's so good. Um, great selection. Knowledgeable people. It's a good system. Um but where was I going with this? Oh, uh, when the blockbusters and Hollywood videos were closing down, mm-hmm. I leapt into action. I'm like, oh God, that Hollywood <laughs> video over on Santa Monica Boulevard is going out of business. We are going there right now because oh, they were, we were selling everything. We were shameless in yeah. that era when when video stores and music stores were closing down. We we were like vultures. We yeah. were just eating they, all the they carrion. Weren't, they weren't keeping their product or selling mm. it back to the studio. They were just selling it. It was a fire sale. Mm. And so I would go in there and I would be like, hey, they have the Criterion Collection of RoboCop, which at the time was like $250. You can get it for and five bucks. You're selling yeah. it for five bucks? I will buy this. Mm. Thank you. I probably bought like the equivalent of like $500 worth of DVDs from this one Hollywood video for less than 60 bucks. <laughs> like it was incredible. It, I, yeah, I was a vulture, but that's how nature works. Isn't it? Something dies and someone's got a car got to clean off those bones. <laughs> so I will do that. And I mm. still look at a significant chunk of my DVD collection. Not, not the biggest, but like a size, like a, at least like five, ten percent is from stuff like that. I, I feel far less guilt than I should for all the scrounging I did. Well, again, they 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 didn't they they didn't make uh, the industry better in a lot of ways. No, in they fact, really they made didn't. It, they made it easier for the industry to get killed off by stuff like Netflix. Hmm. So I don't feel a lot of guilt for for getting that out of print Silence of the Lambs Criterion for three dollars. Yeah, I don't yeah. feel bad at all. Uh, another letter? One more and then right. we're done. Okay, uh, here's a letter from Joel. Hi, Joel. Hi, Joel. Oh, wait, I know Joel. I know Joel. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hi, Joel. Hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Who Whitney knows. Yeah. <laughs> your recent episode of Holy Batman reminded me of a story you might enjoy. Uh, between your mentions of bad improv and the Dick Clark cameo, something shook loose in my head and reminded me of a time I made a bad improv joke. Back in the 1990s, there was a revival of the short-lived game show It Takes Two from 1969. Okay. The revival was hosted by Dick Clark. And the premise was three pairs of contestants would try to guess numerical trivia and the results for various in-studio events. I was not a, I was not a contestant, but rather I was one of the people doing a task that they were guessing the outcome. It was the old age question, how many square knots can a group of Boy Scouts tie over a commercial break? That's an age old question? That you, it's a joke. 
Oh, okay. Uh, the main segment was much cooler. They brought in the Batmobile and spoke with Adam West about it. Mm-hmm. I think they had to guess how much horsepower was under the hood. So I'm hanging out uh, by the craft services table waiting to be called over for my tiny piece of filming, joking around with one of my friends when they bring in the Batmobile to get uh, Batmobile into the, into the lot to get ready. Uh, I was a fan of the show even then, and while talking with my friend, I decided to make a Robin exclamation joke. But I didn't plan ahead. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> what? So what came out was, holy uh, cookies, Batman. I was at the craft services table. It was all I could come up with. <laughs> About 15 feet behind me was Adam West. Oh, no. Just walking into the studio for his segment. Oh, no. He was taken aback slightly, and he smiled, and he was really nice about it. I don't know if he could see how embarrassed I was, but I felt pretty lame. Yeah. Uh, it would have been better if the joke were funny. I was just afraid he thought I was making fun of him. Signed, Joel. <laughs> I, I'm going to say this right now. I think you were fine. Yeah. Uh, Adam was... West has probably got an actual yeah. ribbing like for his career. Mm. Uh, someone just like being surprised to see the Batmobile and like v- paraphrasing the show mm. in a completely benign way. He might have been like, oh, okay, I don't really want to have this conversation right now. But that was nice. Thank you. That's probably the worst he was thinking. Yeah. What he was probably thinking was, oh, a fan. Maybe so. That's probably what he was thinking. Adam, I think Adam West, from what I understand, was a very game fellow. Yeah. Uh, he probably ran into all kinds of awkward things. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a sweet I love, story. I like that story. Yeah. I love uh, stories, stories of awkward celebrity encounters because I've had my share. I spilled soda on Helen Hunt once. Uh, <laughs> I was working at a concession counter, yeah, and it was like she was, she, was, she was bustling around. I was like, "Here's here's your soda," and like the lid popped off, and I spilled it on her hand. She was really pissed off. Was, was she mad about you? <sighs> she was mad at me, <laughs> but she wasn't in a sitcom called "Mad at You." <laughs> uh, I, I have I have a dozen Faye Dunaway stories, and um, who doesn't? Uh, who, who doesn't have a dozen Faye Dunaway stories? Who lives in Southern right? California? I was working in a 7-Eleven and she came in with a weed whacker. Um, but uh, I, I have a Diedrich Bader story where oh. I, I ran into Diedrich Bader at one point at this big press event right when I was starting out. So I was like totally green to all of this. And I was going for and it was this big event where you could go from table to table and like sort of see what films people were selling. It was like this film market thing. Yeah. And Diedrich Bader was in a, a a project. He was sure. hyping some project. He was handing out cards. He was talking very enthusiastically about it. And I walked up to him and I said, I, I can you do the searcher from danger theater? Because I was a, like the <laughs> fan of danger theater, this really short lived anthology comedy series from 1993 that we, which we covered on canceled too soon. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I played a character called the searcher, which was uh, an open spoof of renegade. Yeah. Just this cool guy with a motorcycle, but it, like horrible, violent things would happen to him. He's like wily coyote. I said, could you do the searcher? And he, he did. He, delight, he was actually very game. He said, yeah. I'm sorry. I, uh, that, that show was canceled. Uh, oh, no. A plane is going to crash into me. And I, said, and I said, oh, my God, thank you. And I hugged him. I, I didn't even ask. I just sort of lunged forward. And I felt like horrible immediately. Like, I'm still hugging him and I yeah. feel horrible. And I let go. I just said, thank you. You made my year. And, and he kind of smiled and he handed me a card. Yeah, be sure to get my project. Yeah. Um, years later, when Twitter was a thing. I said, uh, I'm, I'd like to apologize 15 years later for hugging Diedrich Bader. And he says, I remember you. That was fine. <laughs> like on Twitter, it's like, oh, no. oh, great. <laughs> Diedrich Bader remembers that too, and he's okay with it. Of course he is. I'm good. <laughs> listen, listen, celebrity interactions can be awkward because, yeah. if only because, if especially, especially if it's random. Yeah. If it's, in, if it's on purpose, like you're supposed to interview them or something, everyone knows we're being professional, we're going to be polite, etc. Uh, but if you meet them randomly... 
Hmm. Um, you never know what kind of day someone has had. Yeah. And I've met celebrities on good days. I've met celebrities on bad days. And I try not to be too judgmental uh, if they're not, like, super into hanging out with the fans today. <laughs> yeah. Which is why, usually, I don't say anything. Hmm. Um, occasionally, if someone, like, someone really cool. I remember, uh, uh, like, I... Um, uh, who was the guy in the in the prophet? In prophet, yeah, the the show prophet. Oh, Adrian no. Pazdar. Okay, I mean, I was working at a, at a bookstore. Adrian Pazdar was at the bookstore, and you're not supposed to bother anyone when you're working there. But I was such a huge prophet fan. I was mm-hmm. like, dude, I just want to say, I know you get this all the time. You were really cool in prophet. Thank you. And he was already in Heroes at the time, so it was probably not something he was hearing. He was probably expecting me to talk about Heroes, and he was just like. Thanks, man. That was cool. And right. I was like, ha that's nice. And then I told everyone, that was Adrian Pastar. And like, people were like, is that the guy with the Dixie chick? And it turns out he was married to one of the Dixie chicks, and I didn't recognize her. And I felt oh, really no. rude. <laughs> it felt so rude. Oh, God. For just recognizing. I don't know. I probably thought it was funny. Mm. But, um, mm. I, you know, I don't. We're in this weird position where we're not celebrities, but some people might recognize us in certain situations. Yeah, like yeah, a, like I've, in a movie theater back when those yeah. existed. Like, hey, I reckon, hey, I recognize you. Somebody yeah. will, might want to talk to us. I've had like like three instances and just random occurrences where I rec- where I ran into someone on the street who recognized me from the Schmodown. Yeah, that's like, that's happened to me before too. Yeah, yeah. just walking up to uh, uh, like a cool restaurant on Sawtell. Uh, one time I was in a Baskin Robbins and a guy who worked there was a fan hmm. and he was just like, Hey, how you doing? And you know what? It was nice. Yeah. They were polite. They, they're into the stuff that I was doing and they were very kind. The coolest one ever though, was when I was at South by Southwest hmm. and I was talking to, um, I was talking to Scott Mance actually. Okay. Um, and uh, we were just having a conversation before no, Scott the, Mance is a real celebrity. He is. He's, <laughs> he's actually like on, like he's been on access Hollywood and shit. He's actually like pretty well known. Um, I saw him on a video in the gas station once, you know, they put like videos on, on like the gas pumps now sometimes. And it was like, Scott, Jesus, what are you doing here? You're, you're recording. Okay. But in any case, I was just having a conversation with Scott about some movie we had just seen or were about to go see, and someone walked by and then walked back, and they recognized my voice from a podcast. <laughs> that was cool. Hmm. That was really neat. That was fun. So I really appreciate it. Uh, if you're nice and polite and you don't try to monopolize like people's time, it's nice to have people come up to you and say they like your stuff. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely nice. Just be polite, be respectful, understand that people might have other things going on that day. You're cool. That's a really sweet Adam West story. Uh, I bet Adam West was charmed. I really yeah, do. Yeah. Um, so that's it for, for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Um, we would love to hear from you. If, uh, uh, if you would like to write in, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We're open books. Ask us questions about movies, whatever, other things that aren't things, maybe some different things beyond that. It's your choice. Knock yourself out. I'm running out of energy. Uh, <laughs> we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, once again, we give a very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show and all of our other shows would not be able to exist. Uh, if you want to join us over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, there's a ton of perks. You get to vote for future episodes. You get uh, exclusive podcasts about the 1960s Batman, about Star Trek, about uh, Disney, about the Oscars. We do commentary tracks. Uh, all of that is available there and there's a huge back catalog already available uh, if you sign up now if you haven't before um, and of course uh, head on over to etsy.com and look up salt cat soap uh, if you want to check out the latest soap designs 
uh, by M. Lapis da Silva, my wife and partner, uh, and also the author of the horror vigilante novel Hooker. Uh, again, Salt Cat Soap on Etsy. There's a ton of stuff on there. It's really amazing soap. Some of them are very fancy. They make great gifts. Some of them are just really nice to have around the house. Um, we just want to make sure you know that they're there because we're making them. And I'm going to be making some for the Schmodown pretty soon, too. So oh, we'll nice. be announcing that. Uh, yeah, my goal is to keep making soaps that sort of tie into our matches. So it'll be fun. Um, okay, so that's it. Once again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Sincerely yours. Bibs and Whitney.